0: Hello everyone and welcome to episode number 20 of the Display Show. I'm your host, Brian Berkeley, here to speak with key display industry leaders and influencers to get the latest insights about electronic displays. To get more market perspective on the fast moving display industry, today we're speaking with Paul Gray of Omdia. Paul leads Omdia's home devices research, which spans television sets, smart homes, consumer electronics, and domestic appliances. His main research area is TV sets, focusing on the European region, broadcast technology, smart TV, and new TV features. Paul is also heavily engaged in researching the development of the ultra high definition ecosystem. Paul first joined Omdia more than 15 years ago. With over 30 years of experience in the TV set supply chain, working for NXP and Philips in semiconductors and displays, Paul continues to research the TV business. Among others, Paul has been cited by the Financial Times, Korea Times, Korea Daily, Nikkei, and Le Monde. Paul holds a degree in electrical engineering and a diploma in industrial studies. In our conversation, Paul and I talked about how the viewing experience is more important than specsmanship, lifestyle effects on viewing patterns, differences between the European markets versus North America, what vinyl records have in common with displays, and the fact that viewers watch content, not screens. Please don't forget to subscribe and hit the bell for notifications when new episodes are released. Now, on with the show. Paul, thanks for joining us and welcome to The Display Show. Hi, Brian, it's good to join you. First, let's start with Omdia. Would you like to say a few words about what your company does and the services it offers?
1: Yeah, certainly. We're the research arm of uh, Informa Technology, which is a, uh, a large company that does um, tracking of, of markets. It informs, educates technology community, and we also run media and training and events um, and specifically in uh, in my part of Omdia, we cover displays, consumer electronics, semiconductors, uh, telecoms, and, uh, and and various other markets.
0: You recently attended CES 2023, and of course that's the industry's biggest event. What do you think were some of the most important developments shown for TVs and other large screen displays?
1: Yeah, certainly CES, I think uh, post-pandemic is rather different to the CES that we experienced before. And it's becoming less a show to um, list up and queue up a whole range of products for launch in uh, in the coming year, and it's become, becoming much more about experiencing technologies. We've all seen it broken on the internet and uh, uh, and so on, and now it's about what does it feel like? What's it there to to uh, to experience and um have a sense of presence. Um, certainly, the first thing that obviously headlined CES was a new generation of OLEDs from Samsung and LG, um, with quite major improvements um, uh, to, uh, to, to OLED, white OLED or QD OLED. Um, we also saw Chinese brands, TCL and Hisense, um, really declare just how serious they are about uh, growing their business and challenging in North American markets. Um, and they're doing it in particular with very, very large screens, uh, so 85-inch and 98-inch, for example. Um, the global brands look more and more serious about sustainability. It's moved from what could be argued arguably called greenwashing, and now it's about redesign of products, and we saw quite a lot of that. Um, the elephant in the room on that one, of course, is that bigger screens consume more power than smaller screens, and it's somewhat incompatible with just bumping up the screen size every year. Um, one thing that I hadn't really expected was how VR this time around um, has, has got beyond good enough. We're now at the point of actually, you don't see the screen door effect, you don't see the artifacts that you used to have in the past. It's good enough, you can start to suspend disbelief, um, but that now moves the VR challenge over towards software and content um, and, and is now becoming a media challenge. Um, and finally, uh, gaming, uh, it's, it's a really growing theme and gaming centric products and product ranges are now becoming core for, for many brands.
0: So there's quite a bit to unpack there. Um, I wanted to ask you something about VR, which is uh, good enough, at least in terms of display quality, I suppose have they tackled vergence accommodation issues? And and, uh, uh, is it really to the point where you're having the VR experience versus uh, having uh, all the distractions of visual artifacts and headaches and that sort of thing?
1: Um, I'm really sensitive um, to motion sickness. I can't read a book in a car. And I spent 25 minutes inside a VR environment which Five years ago, I'd have felt physically sick after ten minutes, and I did twenty-five minutes, and I felt not quite myself, but but other than that, and I had senses of motion, even though I knew I was stationary. So that I was at that moment where my brain was suspending disbelief, and the latency has gone. So I think that we're, we're at at the point of good enough. Probably I wouldn't want to spend an hour inside it, but. You know, it's a very real and uh, and meaningful experience now, and I think that is a big change. That you can suspend disbelief now. Yes, there's still a bit of pixel structure, but it's really there. And the latency and the lag, for example, in displays um, and displays had gone. And I think the really telling one was that when I when I'd finished all that, um, I, I suddenly looked around and realised that it was wireless five years ago, then, of course, you'd have been tethered and unable to move more than six foot from uh, from a central spot. So no, I think it's come on a lot, and it's almost the point we're kind of unaware of the technology now.
0: Well, that sounds certainly like huge improvement. Uh, yeah. so, so that's great news. Um, and another important thing that you said is, is um, CES evolving to become more of a technology showcase instead of a yeah. place to sell products uh, or current products anyway. Um, so we'll continue to watch that transition, uh, too. Uh, so very interesting observations. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, one of the things that's been happening are, are the peak luminance wars. And I'm wondering if, if, if that's back on in a big way this year. It was amazing to see OLEDs, in, including white OLED and QD OLED TVs, claiming peak luminance specs of over 2,000 nits. and. Uh, of course, this drives LCD set makers to push even harder with a few brands now talking about peaks over 3,000 nits. Um, uh, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Uh, yeah, it's quite interesting as to whether a luminance war plays out. And I, I think the, the thing that will limit it and suppress it is energy consumption. Um, and of course, there's the direct one about compliance with energy labeling in, uh, in different regions, but also of course, energy consumption doesn't come for free. You need bigger power supplies, more heat management and things like that. Um, I, I think you can only go so far before you also start straying too far from content. And we, we've seen repeatedly what happens when you go too far ahead of content. And of course, TV content is not graded for a thousand nits. Um, and, and overall, HDR is still a bit of a treat. So. I'm not really sure where a luminance war actually takes you to in the end. Um it may happen for a while, but I think there are quite a lot of limiting factors on it.
0: Well, and of course Dolby pushed the peak of the PQ curve to 10,000 uh, candela per meter yeah. square.
1: It lurks in the spec somewhere, but I don't know of any broadcaster who wants to do that and um you know the the difficulties of, of achieving those sort of levels of lighting or grading in studios, I think you know Broadcasters aren't talking about it at this stage. There will doubtless be some uh, some luminance and light output gags that somebody will think of. And the bit that probably I fear most of all is soap commercials. So do we have the whole uh, overly loud sound levels in commercials replaced by overly bright commercials, for example? We- we'll see.
0: Oh, I hope not. <laughs> so keep uh. your
1: sunglasses at the ready.
0: Um, you mentioned... Uh power consumption. And that brings me to the topic of resolution. Uh, Because of course, to go to higher resolution requires more power. I was thinking back to the SID Business Conference last May and I was struck by a slide you presented. It it showed that the adoption of 8K in the TV market had not only hit its peak, but it had also made less of a dent in the industry than other ill-fated features like 3D. So with that in mind, I couldn't help but notice that there seemed to be a significant drop-off in 8K TV promotion at CES this year. Uh, do you attribute this to the changing power consumption regulations in the European Union? Or is that maybe a recognition by brands that consumers are more interested in paying for other features such as HDR and deeper color uh, and so on?
1: Uh, and certainly I think the consumer technology press have always been skeptical about 8k um, because they couldn't see an immediate content need other than some scarce things on the internet um, and and I, I think content remains you know the biggest problem because people watch programs not TV sets um, and, and there's NHK's BS 8k channel but we don't know of anybody else who is serious about an 8k service and 4k services are still, struggling to actually prove their their business case. Um, Of course, 8K footage is being shot, and that's largely for the the reasons of giving edit headroom, uh, in the same way that Hollywood's been making movies 25 years in 4K, to give that edit headroom. Um, As far as the EU regulations are concerned, they are about out-of-box condition, and so you can have a TV... Um, with the light output really heavily turned down in the standard settings as it comes out of the box and and you're okay. My own TV, which I bought in November, um, it's an OLED. um, And every time I try and change the picture settings, there's a warning that comes up and says, you might change the energy consumption of your TV by doing this. Uh, (laughs) So I I think we'll see those health warnings appear and... um, uh, and of course, no retailer ever puts such sets on the shelf without putting them into vivid mode or demo mode or whatever. Um, so the consumer will be unaware at first. Get them home and then probably crank the brightness up. It's the same as you know. You know, have you ever got the gas mileage of your car the same as uh, the manufacturer told you it was going to be? You know, it's a standardized test and it's a reference.
0: Yeah. Um, well, and of course, it makes a difference whether somebody's viewing in a bright room or maybe a more subdued. Uh, illumination. Uh, Another CES trend we saw was the impact of gaming on display products of all types. And and these range from a 98-inch, 240 hertz gaming TV to to the Sony car that enables you to play the PlayStation games on the passenger side dashboard display. Uh, So I'm wondering how you see the gaming trend playing out in TVs.
1: Um, It's not just TVs. I mean, it's a strengthening product thread that we see going throughout um, to give an example in notebook pcs OLED's about two percent of shipments if you look at dedicated gaming pcs it's seven percent so um, there's very clearly um, a gaming aesthetic where really really um high contrast and things like that improve the playability of the games and they all have sort of colors that look like sashimi um, in those, it's the way that games are are, um, uh, are authored these days. It's a, it's an artistic choice, um, and that plays straight into squeezing extra performance out of your display. So, definitely, we see a, a really strong thread of gaming TVs. Um, I think brands need a note of caution, which is that the sort of people who are really hardcore gamers who spend one or two thousand dollars on a water-cooled graphics card. Are playing on PCs, um, and therefore that you've got to persuade them to move from um, a big chair to the couch or to the TV. And so I think that console gaming, and which fits naturally with the TV, is is much more of a mid-range market. Um, and persuading people to spend really big cash for console gaming, it's, it's possibly a bit of a paradox in terms of what you're asking. Or what your consumer profile looks like.
0: Well, another thing that we saw at CES were several brands going in. Actually, I want to say all in on on mini LED. Yeah. Um, you know, it wasn't all that long ago that quantum dot mini LED was considered sort of a niche. You know, like yeah. this advanced feature that you could only get in the premium market, and and now. What we're seeing is QD mini-LED TVs are entering the mainstream market with brands like Hisense launching 50-inch 4K mini-LED sets for under $500. So how do you see the mini-LED adoption playing out in 2023? Uh, That's one question. And also, do you see any shift in the power balance between the OLED technologies and Quantum Dot mini-LED LCD as a result?
1: The other point of differentiation on this one is not just what you're using as the size of your light source, um, but also how you're driving it. And it needs to have many, many, many zones to get the high contrast ratio. Otherwise, you're just using a different component as a light source. Um, Now, if you take, let's say, over a thousand zones, which is like Samsung's Q9 series last year. Um, it had OLED like performance. it was slightly different to OLED it was more light output probably still struggling a bit on the um, the black level by comparison with OLED. So if you're watching a brightly lit room or you have white walls then probably the LCD looks better If you watch in the dark or a dimly lit room, then probably the OLED looks better. So these are they're just uh, slightly different optimizations. Um, the bit I fear about is when people make perfectly ordinary TVs. Um, some of the ones I saw looked like they'd got about 20, 25 zones, something like that, which would be very ordinary in terms of performance, and they'll have the words mini-LED on them. Um, and, and that's kind of getting a free ride and a bit of marketing, but um, in the end, they won't look different. Um, and I think I think those products that are a little bit disappointing and misleading. Getting all that performance out of mini LED is difficult, and it's a semiconductor problem and a backplane problem. Um, and you need to really reshape your value chain to do that. You need people to produce custom power semiconductors to drive these things. Um, we're not quite there yet. Power semiconductors are generally in shortage still because of the auto industry, amongst others. Um, we do see some people doing um, high performance mini LED, mini LED, and some of them have them in their ranges. So um, uh, let, let's wait and see what happens. What I don't like is the ones that are sort of marketed as a V eight car but only got four spark plugs.
0: <laughs> so Paul, you've you brought up a really important point, and that's the notion of. Uh, Mini-LED, and and implied in that is if you don't have enough uh, dimming blocks, uh, the haloing problems become more apparent. There's no real advantage to mini-LED over uh, conventional LED backlighting with full-array local dimming if you don't have a significant increase in the number of zones. And I I really worry about what that's doing uh, to confuse the consumer And it's bad, in my opinion, for the TV ecosystem uh, to have poor implementations out there. Um, I wonder if you have anything more to say about that.
1: Um, I I think what I have to say is the same when people ask me what TV they should buy. And I say, go out, watch a TV in the same way that you um, intend to view it at home on the same sort of content. And in the end, it's about marketing and experience. And one of the things that disappoints me is that too little attention is spent on the experience that consumers have and explaining that experience. Um, you know, you shouldn't need to tell people how many pixels there are on the screen. They should be visible. And if you can't see them, then you know, don't buy, don't pay for extra. Um, and it's, I think, it's a blind spot the industry's got and had for a very long time about. You know, marketing the experience,
0: and and I think uh, that's a super important point. You know, a mini LED TV that has only a few dozen uh, dimming blocks uh, is going to have significant haloing. It's like, what's the whole point of it? You're saying mini LED to imply that you've got a better performing television set, uh, but clearly that's not the case uh, unless there are a significant enough number of zones.
1: Right. Absolutely. You know the it is not a. It is not a problem um, solved only by changing the, the the component that emits light. You have to do other things to the whole
0: optical system. Right, and so I think um, it's up to folks like you and me to to spread the word and yeah. to make sure consumers know what they're getting, uh, and um, you know to take the marketing and. Uh, Throttle back a couple notches on that and instead make the experience a good experience. So I appreciate right. it. Right.
1: And demonstrate stuff. Try content out. Know what really good HDR content with deep color looks like compared to you know, stuff that's numbers marketing and still shot in Rec. 709. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So let's continue to get the word out uh, the door about that. Um, thank you for that. Um, Paul, what other advanced features or technology do you think will be. Next, to be rapidly ad- adopted into mainstream TV. Um, as examples, OLED and QD OLED seem like uh, potential candidates, but will panel makers find the rationale to invest in the fab capacity needed to produce enough volume to compete with LCD? And um, I'll throw a ringer out here, too. What, what do you think about short throw projection sets compared to flat panel TVs?
1: Yeah, I... <sighs> The industry is in a real hole, um, and, and that's the, the poisonous effect of LCD overcapacity, and, and nobody actually benefits from that. Um, yes, TV brands get cheap panels, but in the end, if there's no further development in, in panels, that's not good for them long term. Um, and, and low margins are clearly stifling innovation. Um, I, I think it's unfair to say that the capacity growth was entirely irresponsible when the decisions that were made on capacity um, were done then the Chinese TV market had just touched 60 million units a year with size growth expected and now it's 42 million units a year so that's you know really come off a huge peak and that that's a major part of it. What I really want for Christmas is, uh, is really good HDR on LCD. Um, been numerous studies um, I think the Uh, The UHD Alliance has done some good ones. Some great ones were done by Forever in France, in Orange Labs. And they show that HDR works regardless of the screen size. Um, And and remember when that first OLED TV came out, that Sony 11-inch one, and you looked at it and you thought, there's something different about this display. There's something really arresting about it. Um, And and that's what I, I think. And it should be HDR for the rest of us. Um, and not just the um, uh, the few million uh, sets of OLED a year.
0: It would be lovely to uh, to get the cost out of it. Oh, you're um, talking about um, the the XE L one. Yeah, that's right. Going back many many years, uh, the and very first.
1: Yeah, I remember those journalists who said it's like watching TV TV with a glass out. Yeah, there, there was something different about it. It was like looking into a fish tank or something like that. You know, with bright tropical fish. It was an amazing experience, and I think. You know, still most TVs that are sold in retail have 300 nits or less brightness um, and the contrast ratio is very ordinary. Um, So there's still a lot to do. um, And and the challenge is doing that economically. Um, But, you know, let's not forget the magic of when LCD came out 15 years ago and really grew incredibly, then they were expensive TVs and consumers were happy to buy them. Why? Because they could see the value and it was so different. Um, and again, it's about demonstrating, just as we talked about, Brian. Um, late, to answer your question on a laser TV, um, I kind of struggle with it. Um, really, I love the idea of the invisible TV, and you've got something the size of a small suitcase that just sits on, sits on a shelf um, and, and vanishes when it's turned off, rather than a big black slab. Um, And especially, you know, 85 inch or 98 inch, you know, that's a black door that's on the wall. It's a school blackboard. Um, And that's hard to hide. Um, The problem I have with laser TV is that, of course, nobody's invented black light. And so the black level is only ever as good um, as the unactivated surface it's on. Um, you can do some tricks to, with dedicated screens to improve the gain, but you're still limited to that unactivated um, uh, brightness level. Um, if you've got a dedicated movie room and you paint your walls black, um, then it's pretty compelling, and especially you can get a 100-inch or even 120-inch screen for quite acceptable amounts of money, and that's beyond, I think, where we'll ever see direct-view screens go to because of the bulk problem. Um, However, if you have it in a normal living room, I think you'll be disappointed, especially if you watch in in normal light levels. Um, So I think they're interesting in a niche, um, and that's a home cinema one. I'm not sure elsewhere. There are interesting stories in some markets, uh, in particular China, about eye strain and blue light. um, And certainly brands are capitalising on that in China, which is really where most laser TVs are sold. Um, so we will see, but I, I, I think it's a niche, and I think that the the problem of cost of a complicated electromechanical device with lenses and and all sorts of things in it is much harder to cost reduce than uh, flat panels displays.
0: Well, I know there's different applications for it. Like for instance, our producer Jeff here was telling me how a friend of his, a neighbor. Um, was having movie night. And so they had a projection TV, they spread out a sheet from a clothesline or something like that, and they had everybody come over and, and, uh, you know, it was dark, it was nighttime, and and they were able to watch a movie, uh, you know, in the neighborhood that way. Um, And then, as you said, there are people who have uh, darkened uh, viewing environments uh, that would be suitable, uh, where you don't have as much concern about the the black levels and therefore the contrast ratio of the the set. But uh, it's all an interesting uh, discussion to uh, talk about all of the different technologies out there. And talking about that, um, I think Samsung is in a particularly interesting position in the premium TV market. Uh, They have no less than three distinct technologies uh, that are vying for their attention at this point. Um, First, uh, they have uh, QLED LCD TVs, and in that one category, uh, there are all three of the the 4K QLED, the 4K Neo QLED with mini-LED, and then uh, they have 8K. Um, And secondly, they have uh, QD OLED, uh, a brand new category that they created, uh, just started last year. Uh, and they announced some improvements on that this year at CES. And third, they have launched several micro-LED products this year as well. So how do you think they will manage three or more different flagship-level TV technologies?
1: Yeah, they're spoiled for choice, aren't they? Um, and, and, and I think for them, I know I, I, I have a lot of sympathy
0: with their... Wait, wait, their, wait. wait. Is, uh, is that a British term, spoiled for choice?
1: Um, it just means that it's really tough. It, you know, that is, you know, most of the rest of us dream of having that level of choice, don't we? Um, and at the same time, I think, I, you know, I've got a lot of sympathy for their people deciding their product ranges because there is no obvious right answer. They're all good technologies. They, they all do slightly different things. It's like, you know, do you get a cat or a dog? One catches mice and the other one ca- chases sticks. Um, and, and, and they've got the same thing, thing on that one. Whatever happens, I think that mini LED evolution will, um, the speed of that will depend heavily on Samsung because Samsung has such an amazing track record on reshaping value chains, really totally transforming them. Uh, you know, as we saw they did with Quantum Dot and LED backlights, you know, and, and they're very, very good at it. That is something that nobody else um, ha, ha, has the same track record on. Um, and clearly, the debate inside Samsung as to what to do could go on forever. We saw Sony had the similar debate when they first launched OLED, and they had that you know um, the the Z series LCDs, great product, did something slightly different to OLED, and again, it was a cat versus dog decision. Um, consumers though around the world really are now saying that if you want um, premium performance, you buy OLED. Rightly or wrongly, but that is now recognized by consumers as something that's distinct, different, and unique. Um, and I think that Samsung will probably go in the medium term with QD OLED. Um, and as for mini and micro LED, well, you know, those ones depend on cost evol- evolution. But Samsung owns a semiconductor company and they've got a lot of semiconductor expertise, as well as displays and passives. So I think I still think that they could spring surprises on us. Um, And you see the, the absolute pace of innovation that they've done with micro LED, where five years ago there were visible tiling artifacts. And looking at that 77 inch at CES, you really struggle to see tiling artifacts now. Um, So, I I wouldn't bet against them pulling a surprise on us.
0: An area to watch for sure. Uh, You closely follow the European market. So I'm interested uh, to get your perspectives uh, and share with our viewers some of the differences between the European and the North American markets.
1: Europeans definitely will. Um, skew a bit more towards performance as opposed to screen size when they've got a choice of uh, exactly what sort of mix of things that they want. Um, Partly that's because people have smaller homes and they've already moved a lot of furniture to squeeze in TVs. So 55 inches already the best selling single size in in Western Europe. I I think also you have a lot more public service broadcasters. People watch a lot more off air still. Um, So something like... 35-40% of households are watching um, free-to-air TV from an antenna, and they won't pay for pay TV. Streaming services like Netflix and uh, Amazon Prime have been very successful, Um, but there's a slightly different mix uh, in there, and we we generally pay less for content and we pay more for the TV set. Um, And OLED's been a stunning success in Western Europe. Um, you know, in particular, Germany, where 55 inch OLEDs in the top five or top 10 selling individual SKUs. Um, so, very, very strong affinity for OLED. But it's been a very competitive OLED market that we've had six, seven, eight players all offering OLED TVs, unlike really the two that have been in North America. So, it's been a very, very fierce market for OLED at the same time. Um, and, and I think the other last one is that. Uh, advertising is much more restricted in Europe. The number of minutes of advertising in every hour broadcast are much lower. And therefore, there's a slightly different TV content business model and with state players as well who are often very, very much pushing the, the boundaries of what can be done with technology, in particular uh, Rai in Italy and uh, the BBC. Then you do see a lot more upfront innovation in content, and that certainly helps high-end TV.
0: Well, I want to come back to that question later about advertising, because I've got to follow on. Um, uh, But next, I'd like to ask you about age demographics. Um, I'm wondering if larger TVs are better suited for boomers like me uh, and Gen X, while millennials and Gen Z might tend toward streaming on smaller devices and screens.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because the other answer may just simply be that they're young and got less money than us. Um, and and I think we, we have to be very careful. And you can't take it away from spendable income and home ownership patterns, which have been you know a major differentiator that younger de- demographics now are living much more in rented accommodation, living much more transient lifestyles than they did 20 or 30 years ago. And very definitely, they just see content as content and they will move across screens um, and are quite happy and comfortable doing that. I think it's I think actually that they will they will move to the screens as they get older. and one of the reasons is that you know your your lifestyle changes, you end up having kids, you end up sitting exhausted in the evenings and you can't have babysitters and so on and and then you stop consuming TV. And we certainly saw during the pandemic that TV ownership, which in most parts of the developed world has been falling, North America being a, a real outlier where TV ownership's been flat and high, but elsewhere it actually nudged up again, which shows to me that people do value TV and they rediscovered actually what how nice it is. To watch on a big screen, you know, in the same way that everybody fell out of love with audio because they forgot what good audio sounded like. And now we see, you know, headphones that cost as much as 32 inch TV and then some. So I think it's a bit of both. Vinyl. I'm I'm
0: seeing vinyl.
1: Oh yeah, and vinyl. Well that's that's really also about the experience, isn't it? And do you remember how we were talking earlier on about sell consumers the experience? Yeah. Yeah, and vinyl is all about the experience and probably it's about listening to it from start to finish rather than just, you know, the odd track. And um, watching TV is an experience and it's a shared experience and it's different to watching something on your own. We've certainly seen video consumption split from shared and personal. Uh, and, And the best example of that is data from the BBC. Um, on the usage of the iPlayer catch up service, which is like the Hulu of the UK. And people watch iPlayer um, later in the evening um, than TV. So peak TV viewing in the UK is around about nine o'clock in the evening. Peak iPlayer usage is about 10 o'clock. It also spikes in the morning at weekends. So this is TV in bed. Yeah, this is me TV. This isn't sitting there watching a the programme next to my best beloved and sharing the experience. This is mine. Yeah. And you've got your headphones on. Um, and we've seen that happen in audio with headphones and, and in-car audio becoming much more important. So their habits of shared viewing, I think, remain the same because that's a basic human need to share. The problem probably from the TV market is that second and third TVs are going to become less and less valuable to, uh, to younger demographics.
0: Well, this brings me to display economics, uh, especially TV set economics. Uh, 2021 and 2022 were respectively, one of the best and one of the worst years in the history of flat panel displays. In 2021, panel makers were struggling to keep up with pandemic-fueled demand uh, from consumers stuck at home, as you said. And that drove prices to all time highs. And then by middle of 2022, we saw the reverse as consumers started to invest in activities outside of the home. Uh, Could you walk us through some of the dynamic macroeconomic issues that led to those two contrasting years? Um, Also, I saw a recent Omdia note that predicts a strong rebound in LCD TV panels based on feedback uh, from Korean and Chinese TV makers. Is that just wishful thinking, or will we see a return to growth in 2023?
1: The pandemic obviously caused a huge inventory correction and, and you know the whole thing ran off the edge of a cliff. I, I think it was particularly painful in North America because at the same time, the supply chain had stretched out because Trans-Pacific shipment had got so much longer and slower. Um, and panel industry was hit hard, TV set makers were hit hard. Um, and what we see in 2023 is recovery. Um, probably when you look at it globally, then that low point is Q1 2023, when that last of the surgeon shipments in Q1 2022 is the toothpaste tube had got stu- stood on and the last of it all came out. Um, in, in terms of shipments, uh, we'll see that. And 2023 is going to be a quiet year. There's no major global sports events like the Olympics or World Cup or anything like that to drive it. And after that, I think we see everything start to get going. Now, if you're a panel maker, you'd had cancellation after cancellation, everybody got cautious, everybody ran out their safety stocks. So they they got doubly hit, a lower run rate and an inventory correction on top of that. Now things get back into balance. You see inventory levels everywhere are at sensible, um, sustainable levels, and People started to order again off panel makers, so that's why you see that um, that sort of whiplash effect. That panel makers see the recovery um, a little bit earlier than TV brands, and tam- panel makers got hit twice. I think the bad news is that there's no magic extra source of demand that people are putting the pieces back together. But even in recessions, and you know, uh, for consumers in Europe, for example, who are paying a lot more for energy then TV's a pretty resilient product. It's cheap entertainment. Um, consumers may not have the money to go out in the evenings, uh, eat out, go to the cinema. Um, but Disney will, and other streamers will now offer you a massive choice of movies at home, including current ones. Um, and you know, a, um, a dinner in front of the TV watching a movie is very, very cheap entertainment. And that's great value for consumers. And consumers instinctively know that. So. As a result, I think that TV demand will look pretty solid if unremarkable.
0: Sounds like softness will continue for a while, but uh, with hopes for uh, a pickup maybe later in the year. Um,
1: Yeah, I think it's. I think this is just a gradual recovery. Um, Emerging markets have looked pretty good. Uh, They got starved of panels uh, during the pandemic because people wanted to sell those panels. Um, into developed markets, so the emerging markets are coming back, um, but it's it's going to be unremarkable growth, um, and, and that I think is the uh, the bottom line. There's no there's no miracles.
0: One of the factors that contributed to sales of higher margin TVs during COVID was the semiconductor shortage, uh, especially at the older nodes, and you know this affected everything from uh, TVs to automobiles. Uh, so has that issue finally cleared?
1: i think there's two layers to this one so in terms of the pandemic surge for high-end chips for PCs, smartphones and so on then yeah that's that that's definitely over and the semiconductor industry is reporting you know a really tough time at the moment actually the pandemic i think was almost coincidental with a, a fundamental shift in semiconductor demand for power semis which is the auto side of it um and that was a structural change If you look at the loading on power fabs, then there's probably another year to go in terms of shortage, and we don't really see that completely clearing up until probably the end of 2023. The difficulty for power is these are more low-margin products, Um, and you've got to be a brave investor, invest in the troughs, build your capacity in old nodes. Now, that's a new thing for the semiconductor industry. You've always gone on to the next node. You've always gone on to Newer processes, and now you suddenly got to backfill in the older processes because, actually, that's where the markets are, um, and, and that that's quite different. So yes, it's needed, and it, what it needs above all is patient investors who invest against the cycle. But the demand is fundamentally there.
0: Yeah, I, I can tell you that column drivers, backlight drivers, even timing controllers uh, for panels uh, are, are not built using sub ten nanometer. Um, uh, CMOS, they're they're older nodes, uh, so we'll be watching that one uh, closely as well. In terms of the overall TV supply chain, can you comment on the health uh, of that area?
1: Well, obviously, if you're wanting to buy panels or TVs, then yep, it's pretty free um, supply now. Um, Shipping costs have also come back down to pre-pandemic levels, so you're not worrying all the time about where you manufacture something with the shipping cost component. Um, I would say that it's never a healthy industry if people are losing money, or if somebody in the value chain is losing money, then that is not sustainable long-term, and things have to change to bring panel makers back into profit. What we've seen in the solar industry and in LEDs, Um, for for lighting was that in that case, there was so much overcapacity that in the end, the Chinese government stepped in and forced consolidation. Obviously, we've seen Samsung and LG very proactively use withdrawal of capacity to revalue markets. And they've always played those cards very, very cleverly. Um, and, And we may see part of that, but that has to happen for the market to be healthy and the whole business to be healthy. You can't have people Carrying on losing money forever.
0: Well, and, and I think those players that you mentioned have led through innovation, rather than just right. trying to do more and bigger and and uh, larger uh, sizes and and bigger volumes and so on. Um, they've uh, focused on improving uh, value delivery uh, and uh, innovating yeah. at the high end.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And but at the same time, they've also known. And made very good strategic decisions on when to stop, and that's actually lifted the margins on uh, their other businesses. So, for example, when Samsung withdrew those Gen Seven fabs, they actually revalued the business, and they never left when they were under a cloud and losing money. They they left. They knew when to walk away from the table, and and they played that very shrewdly.
0: Yeah, I don't. I don't think any uh, LCDs are being made in Korea. Anymore, um, I think mean, scarcely any. You know, yeah. yeah. What about the TV set makers? How are they making their money?
1: Um, there, there's certainly a big change that's going on on the um, the, the TV side, and and it, it's kind of unreported at the moment. And that is a shift away from making money on hardware to making money on services. And if you look, for example, at the um, uh, the financial statements from Vizio then they're currently making 99% or so of their profits out of advertising and data and services, rather than actually money on selling the hardware. And and likewise, you you see a similar business model from Roku. In in fact, that's always been what Roku has done, that they aim to make money on uh, services, software, and advertising. Um, Samsung now has its own TV service and TV channels. Um, and they are very very serious about their data and advertising as well. And Samsung is now um, selling advertising directly through its own business. So we're now seeing that TVs are almost a bit like set top boxes, um, that you 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 put those into the market, but they're there to to sell software services, advertising, um, and that's a really big big shift. We did a little back of the envelope calculation uh, this week and if you look at Roku or, or, or Vizio, then they appear to be making around about $5 per subscriber, per quarter. And Samsung said in one of their investor statements, they expected TV to remain active doing this for five years. So that's about $100 worth of, um, uh, of revenue. And to think the 65-inch TVs in Walmart were selling for, um, what, $228 on Black Friday? You can see that that's pretty compelling if you're a TV set maker. Um, so this is going to change people's motivations. It will change the hierarchy of players. It's going to be all about installed base. Um, at the same time, that doesn't work everywhere. That If you look at linear TV advertising, for example, then half the linear TV advertising spend in the world is spent in the US, which is probably why you see so many OS platforms already in the US and why the battle is so very, very serious. It doesn't necessarily work elsewhere, for example, in China, where the government has a very major controlling uh, stake in what appears on TV screens. Um, And in other countries, then the advertising market may be too small. Um, So I think we're going to see very, very selective use of this business uh, model, but it's becoming a new front in that battle.
0: But wait a minute, Paul. Um, What you're talking about here uh, could be quite profound and and maybe negative to the viewing experience. Like if I launch uh, my TV and I just turn it on, right, and I'm at the OS level trying to choose across uh, Netflix uh, or Hulu or some other over-the-top service uh, or just watching live TV, Does that mean I'm going to start seeing an ad uh, while I'm in that process? You
1: already are. (laughs) So it's just that, for example, Samsung TV+, Plus. then Samsung is selling that advertising on that channel, which they own. Um, Samsung also will sell you banner ads that appear on the the screen or the UI at the beginning. Um, And I I think what we're seeing is this sort of uh, complete a uh, resetting of who's taking money out of advertising revenue. Um, wow, how, how,
0: how are consumers likely to react to this?
1: Um, I, I've seen some people on consumer forums already objecting to the fact that when they turn the TV on, the first thing they see is an ad, you know, before it even does anything.
0: Yeah, That's not a surprise um, that they're objecting. Uh, uh, sorry? That's not a surprise that they're objecting.
1: Uh, it's not a surprise at the same time, when you look at Netflix, then we see all the growth in the ad-supported tiers. Um, so you know, consumers, whereas five years ago, the the marketing theme was, them was watch TV without ads. And now you say cheaper TV with ads, and they go, oh, OK, we'll have that one now instead. So um, I, I think always it's about tolerance of advertising. It's about whether that advertising is intrusive. Um, at the same time you can't get away with too much of it and one of the clear ones on the quality message is that people watch higher quality products video products uh, content for longer than they watch low quality content yeah and just even in terms of the aesthetics of it people will watch longer on HD channels than on SD channels so the question is about the economics of the content
0: not just for TVs, but for all displays, what do you think are the most important trends to watch for 2023?
1: I think this year looks like the year of um, maturity of foldable displays. Um, and we see a lot of Chinese um, Chinese brands and second tier smartphone brands, the challenger brands, really launching um, foldable uh, smartphones they do it a slightly different way to the sort of products that you've seen from Samsung, for example. So the fold's a bit more visible. Um, there's a bit of a crease maybe, and and but it, but you pay less. Um, now, the industry has been adamant that consumers want foldable displays, um, and we will see what happens um, as to whether that, that holy grail, as far as display makers have been concerned, that assuming that people always want these foldable displays, they'll always like... Uh, those are, we, we will see. Um, at the same time, the smartphone market has definitely peaked um, and it's driving a consolidation through the industry. So if you look at the business results of Samsung and Apple, then they've gained share in this falling market. Um, and the people who've been really hit are the second tier value players, uh, the challenger brands. Moving away from smartphones, then obviously, it's auto. Um, It's the most exciting area for displays at the moment. We're really at the beginning of the story of flex displays, of bendable, of OLED in cars. Um, Huge amount of space for innovation, either for active displays or ones that are more like um, uh, ambient displays that are just there to uh, to set a mood in the car. And I think uh, car designers who are um, so imaginative and creative, and they've got much more freedom than just making a display to watch video on. Um, I, I think we're going to see them do some really, really interesting things, and there's lots of value in that you know, for the consumer, for the car maker, and, and here's hoping for the display maker as well. I, th- I think there's huge potential there. It's going to be really exciting.
0: Well, as always, we will continue to watch the growth drivers, and uh, the market will stay interesting uh, as, as it has been all along. Uh, and that leads me to a final question for you, which is, how should our viewers keep abreast of the latest news and trends uh, in the display industry?
1: Well, quite apart from listening to you, Brian, then um, the other one is definitely sign up on our site. So go to omdia.com, Um And if you register, then there's always updates behind, um, just behind the registration, but for free. Um, and so, so come and enjoy that. Um, We do cover the the media industry very extensively from pay TV to advertising and those things to research. And suddenly, we're at that point where the advertising business and the media business is shaping TV and consumer devices like never before. Um, And and that's a really exciting one for the display world. Um, And and always remember, of course, that people watch content, not screens.
0: Content, not screens. Um, Content, not screens content, not screens. We will make sure to post your company's website for our viewers. And Paul, I just want to say, it's been a pleasure getting your insights today. Thanks for being our guest, and we wish you and everyone at Omdia all the best.
1: Thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure as always. Cheers.